This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In central Vermont, you have to drive to get just about anywhere. In high school, once I had my own car, I built up a mental map of roads good and bad. This giant web linking my house, my school, my friends' houses, my mom's work, my dad's house, and my dad's work. And there was this one road I'd often take when I was in a hurry. A poorly maintained dirt road that went over a steep hill and turned the hour trip from my house to my dad's house into 45 minutes. Last summer I was in Vermont to visit my dad and I thought it would be fun to try out the road to see how well my mental map had stood up to 20 years of decay. Well, the road had gotten worse and the rental car got hung up on some ruts just as I was coming to the top. There were no bars on my cell phone, so I got out to walk. It was nice out, but the summer warmth seemed far away over the trees. It had been a while since I drove past anything, so I decided to keep walking the way I'd been driving. After a minute or so, I came to a big house that looked like some rich out-of-stater's third home. Not a summer home, apparently. At least not this summer. It was locked up tight, with no cars around, and nobody answered my knocks. So I kept walking. And just past the top of the hill, a driveway branched off through the trees, parallel to the ridge. A wooden sign there triggered an old memory. It was pretty faded, but you could still read it. Strigil Institute. Visitors welcome. I'd forgotten part of my mental map after all. The Strigil Institute sign had been one of my old landmarks, one of those places I'd notice whenever I passed them driving around, like the odd guns and clocks store between my house and my dad's work, the witch windows on certain houses that maybe I found more interesting than they actually were or the granite whale tail sculpture I'd see on my way to the dentist's office. This inexplicable institute had once been a personal landmark, but I'd totally forgotten about it. 
and I wondered why I'd never stopped before, turned off and seen if visitors were really welcome. Maybe it was the same reason I never bothered to go shopping at Guns and Clocks, or maybe it was because I was always hungry driving to my dad's house, eager to get there and get myself a snack. But now I wasn't hungry, and I couldn't leave anyway, and so I headed down the driveway to check the place out. The driveway was about a quarter mile long, curving and dropping a bit so the institute couldn't be seen from the road. When the trees opened up and I saw the place, I laughed. The name was pretty grand compared to the actual reality. The institute was a gray building in a sloping field of waist-high grass. There was a spot in front where the grass was tampered down with an old fire pit in the middle. A bunch of crushed and faded beer cans lay in some powdery cinders. There probably hadn't been a party up there for years. Behind the building, the field fell away to a mass of black locusts. And before they'd grown up, the place must have been a great view of Tucker Mountain. And the view was still okay, around the edges of the thorns and branches. The building, the institute, I guess, was sort of peculiar. It had an irregular shape. Squat and cube-like in the center with a taller, pointy wing to the left. And the outside wall was all vertical gray clapboards. You could sometimes see weird buildings like that in Vermont, designed by architects wanting their work to stand out from the old farmhouses. But it was pretty obvious that there was nobody there. Obvious, too, that there was no electricity, no phone. My cell still didn't have any bars, and there had been a cell phone tower installed a few years back not far from there, disguised as a comically oversized pine tree, but I guess I was on a different network. The front door stood open a few inches. I stepped into what I would guess you would call a lobby. It felt like a doctor's office, with some vinyl chairs sitting across from a divider desk. It smelled like mold and leaves and clearly many squirrels had lived in there. They'd stuck bundles of dead leaves everywhere. The floor was spongy in a way that made me nervous. A rotted carpet over plywood. And there was a kitschy painting on one wall. A covered bridge that could have been by Thomas Kincaid, but instead of specks of light, it was covered with blotches of mold. I had a queasy feeling of being in a place that I shouldn't. Not just that I shouldn't have been there because I was trespassing, more that the place itself shouldn't have existed. Buildings aren't meant to be in ruins like that. It was somehow embarrassing, made me angry. I couldn't really say why, and I decided I would steal exactly one thing from the Institute. Now the painting was an okay choice but I was sure there'd be something better in the back. I took each step deeper into the building slowly, not wanting to fall through the rotting boards into God knows what. The area behind the desk was full of water-damaged magazines. The Institute had subscribed to Reader's Digest and Time. An inner door headed deeper into the Institute, and I kept thinking of that 
pompous name and grinning to myself. I guess the institute had probably been founded by some hippie who hadn't quite understood the strange makeup of Vermont, who had thought maybe they could interest some dairy farmers in whatever new agey nonsense they were peddling. Beyond the reception desk, it was pretty dim. Just a little light came in through a skylight that was full of leaves. I waited for my eyes to adjust, and I was glad I did, because I realized I was standing on a balcony overlooking some kind of sunken space. I couldn't see how long the drop was. Probably not that long, taking into account the slope of the hill, but it wouldn't have been fun to lean on a rotting balcony and find out the hard way. It smelled like the worst musty basement in the world down there, and it didn't seem safe at all, so I edged around the balcony to the left through another interior door and into what I thought was the wing I'd seen from the outside. Now the whole wing was piled to the ceiling with bins of junk, milk crates stuffed with papers, garbage bags full of clothing, and maybe they were tapestries. Who knows? Anyway, it was yards and yards of thick burgundy fabric, and the air was stifling. The smell was worse than the musty room before, mostly sweet, but with a truly foul note. The room I was in had been a kitchen, judging by the formica counter in the cabinets. A big binder sat on the counter. Handwritten on the front of it was, The Strigil, an apology. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I was starting to feel sick to my stomach. I grabbed the binder and flipped through it. It was full of pages from a dot matrix printer. A little wrinkled and speckled with brown, but mostly legible. And I saw something about the physicist, Richard Feynman, which almost cracked me up again. I'd been obsessed with him as a kid and must have read his book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, about a half a dozen times. So, that binder was mine. I got out of there. The fresh air outside was like a celebration. I went back to the car and ended up walking an hour further along the road through the woods until I crossed the boundary into the town where my dad lived, where the road was maintained and where buildings existed other than extra vacation homes and abandoned hippie follies. Someone let me use their phone and I called my dad and he came with his truck to help me get the rental car off the ruts. Now a few days passed. It was a normal visit. I didn't get a chance to look inside the binder until dad was away on the last evening of my stay. Busy with his new hobby. Scottish country dancing. I went out to the car and brought in the binder. The pages still smelling a little sweet laid out the whole story of the Strigil Institute in pretty uncomfortable detail. The founder of the Institute, who I'll call W, 
went to UVM in the late 1980s. He studied physics and philosophy. He abandoned his doctoral program, though not his obsessions, and came south from Burlington to live on some land owned by his family. When his parents died, he used the money he inherited to build the house, which he eventually turned into the Strigel Institute. Now apparently the idea of the Strigel itself came to him in a dream. He heard only the name at first. It was named after a tool used in the ancient world for scraping dirt off the skin. After a month of dreams that echoed with the name, he dreamed an image of the Strigel itself. And in the morning, when he woke up, he opened his toolbox and gathered what he needed, and he built the thing. The birthplace of Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon church based on information from a vision, is only an hour or so away from the institute. And maybe W. saw something of Smith in himself. He tried to attract students to the institute to study the theory of the strigil, and even caught a few tempting them with a gorgeous view in a sunlit meditation room and red robes to make them feel like initiates into something special. But nobody stayed for long until Kay. When Kay came to the Institute, he and W found out how to make the strigil work. It seemed that there was a human element necessary to turn a thing from a dream into a working device. The strigil was powered in some way by curiosity. Now W tried to explain what the strigil could do with the aid of metaphor he borrowed from Richard Fenman. He went so far as to claim that Fenman must have dreamed of the strigil too, but hadn't dared build it. Though, that's besides the point. I think Fenman's metaphor was the inside of a brick, the question being... Does the inside of a brick exist? Because of course, you can't observe it. Break a brick in half to see its interior and all you'll see is two new surfaces. All you'll get is more outside. And you'll be no closer to any inside. Now W's strigil was a device which solved this paradox. A metaphysical scraper which could slice away the exterior of an object and reveal its interior to the naked eye. And once they had the strigil working, W and K disagreed about what they should do next. W wanted to bring more students in, while K was content to experiment further with just the two of them. In the end, K won by default. Their sign welcomed visitors, but nobody ever came by. Alone, they scraped the exteriors away to look inside stones, logs, crystals, apples. The strigil ran hot with their curiosity, and Kay convinced W that if they kept using it to look inside such mundane objects, it might burn out before they observed anything of importance. They agreed to perform a final set of procedures, W going first, followed by Kay. Each would use the strigil to scrape away the outer metaphysical surfaces of their faces, revealing their true selves. It worked, W wrote in his apology. 
The strigil carved away everything we didn't need. The pain and blood were an illusion. We wrapped our heads in bedsheets to stem the false blood. I ignored the false pain happily. If I had recently voluntarily removed my own face, would I conceivably have the wherewithal to type this apology? Now, he went on to explain that they tried to record the results of their procedures with a Polaroid camera, but the photographs they took of one another were also false. They captured none of the clarity we had achieved. And so Kay, who painted in his spare time, did a portrait of W, depicting his clarity as faithfully as he could. W drew a picture of Kay, but he was unskilled and the portrait was unsatisfactory. Afterwards, W wrote, Kay grew distressed and took the strigil and Polaroids and both portraits down to the container. At the time of his typing the apology, W hadn't talked to Kay for several days. Now, W wrote that he was ready to fade away entirely now that he had seen inside himself. His curiosity had been satisfied, he wrote, and after he printed his apology, he would go outside and become one with the landscape. An apology, he concluded, is an explanation, strictly speaking. This is not to say I am sorry. I don't think one can or should be sorry for what occurs in a dream. I heard Dad's truck pull into his driveway and it put the binder away. He made us some steaks, bought very cheap as a manager's special from Shaw's. And when I went to bed that night in the loft where I used to sleep as a teenager, visiting Dad on alternate weekends, I thought of what W had implied in his apology. There was somewhere I hadn't seen up at the Institute. Maybe the most interesting place. And so I stopped at the Institute on my way back to the Manchester airport the next day. It was hotter than the day of my first visit, and the field below the Gray Institute building was humming with insects. I pushed down through the grass to the tree's edge, looking for what W might have meant by the container. But it was clear when I found it. A trailer, maybe belonging to an 18-wheeler, set up on cinder blocks and tucked away in the trees. The door at the back was closed, and I forced it open. It stank inside, even worse than the house itself. Everything was jumbled, and of course it was dark. My cell phone didn't have any bars, but its flashlight mode worked, so I made my way back into the container, past boxes full of more burgundy cloth, past heaps of crude clothing sewn from the material. I found a sleeping bag at the very back of the container. An old dead body lay inside it. The flesh had rotted away, leaving just bones inside a stained robe, and the skull was wrapped with a filthy sheet. It was Kay, I supposed. Some scraps of torn photographs were near the back, and I tried to piece them together for a few minutes, but I didn't really need to complete the puzzle to see what the photos were of. The two men with the skin and meat scraped off of their skulls, blood-flooded eyeballs staring at the camera. 
W's sketch of K was there. A human form whose face was filled with tiny jagged scribbles, like you might doodle during a boring meeting at work. K's portrait of W was far more elaborate. W wore a dark red robe, and his face had opened like the covers of a book, revealing what K saw inside of W's head, swirls of color like a nebula being sucked into a black hole, or a bunch of orchids all blending together, or a spiral of bright frills and fronds like a mass of sea anemones. The strigil was there too. It was laughable, clearly the work of someone seriously deranged. The handle was thick beige plastic. It looked like the receiver of an old rotary phone that had been cut in half with a hacksaw. At one end was a chunky electric plug, and at the other, a curving metal blade like a shoehorn. Copper wires had been wrapped in little bundles and glued to the base of the blade, running down into the handle. The workings were sealed off with blobs of caulk. It had a nice weight in my hand, though. Strigil itself was obviously a better souvenir than the apology, and on the way back I stumbled over another red robe skeleton hidden in the deep grass. I guess it was W. I made it to the airport and dropped the car off, and I did expect the TSA to confiscate the strigil, but maybe it looked like something else in my luggage, or like nothing at all. When I got home to Nashville, I plugged it in. Sort of hope it wouldn't work, but it hummed, and I could feel it trembling in my hands. My curiosity burned like a mulch fire. I looked inside stones, Logs, crystals, apples. A lot of truths are still hidden from me. But hopefully, not for much longer.